Well, we're thankful to be together today. Thank you for this uh, ministry that we are able to join in together. We give glory to God for this. We've been building foundations here at Crossroads Church for the last several weeks, and we want to continue that today by looking at what we're calling the new covenant of love, the new covenant of love. We're going to talk about the new covenant. That's probably something you're familiar with biblically, but we're going to go over that and make sure we're all on the same page. It's a really important truth in God's word, and we hope today today would be a blessing as we go over this. But before we get there, of course, do you guys have anything obsolete in your home? <laughs> Cheryl? Now, we moved from Pennsylvania, most of you know that, and a move is actually a blessing because you take all that junk, that has accumulated for many years in your home and you either decide to keep it because you're a lunatic or you say, why am I keeping this and not using this for years and years and years and you ended up throwing it away? Well, we are going to get somewhere with this today, but I want to give you, I typically kind of just give you a list and it's ha-ha. Um, today I'm going to give you a quiz. And if you're willing, you can answer back out loud. That would be wonderful. But I'm going to give you a quiz and you're going to let me know what, after I show you an obsolete thing, I want, I want you to tell me what is the updated version of the thing that I'm showing you, okay? So I'm going to show you 10 things that are obsolete according to our culture. Now, it doesn't mean you don't use any of these things. Some of us might. But according to our culture, most people in our culture do not use these things. And I want you to tell me what is the updated version of the thing that I'm about to show you, okay? Number one, what is that? Floppy disk. You guys remember the floppy disk, right? You put that in your computer and stores files. Does anyone still use floppy disks? No, of course not. They've been obsolete for many, many years. But what is the updated version of the floppy disk? What do we now use to store our files? The cloud. That's right. It's somewhere mysterious above us. Our files are dangling above us in the cloud. Uh, we don't use floppy disks anymore. But my dad had tons of these things. Shelves and shelves of floppy disks. And uh, once... Once we moved, we had to get rid of those things. Here's another one. You guys know what that is, right? Who knows what that is? Say it out loud. It's a VCR. And now this is a combo, if you see that. It's like a combo unit, one of those cool ones. Now, VCRs, does anyone still have and use a VCR to some degree? And why is that, Jamie Rose, if you don't mind me asking you? Classics still on tape. Okay. What's another reason someone might hang on to a VCR? Whole movies. Right when your mom sits you down and says, we're going to watch nine hours of an entire day that is incredibly boring. Um, but a lot of us don't use VCRs anymore. We, don't, we, don't have a, we have a DVD player somewhere, but it's not even hooked up because DVD players, to some degree, are also obsolete. So what's the updated version of the VCR? What are we using now to, to watch things? Streaming. That's right. Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, all of that. Disney. And that is the new updated version of the VCR. So if you have a VCR, okay, it's, you're a little outdated, but that's okay. How about this one? Who knows what that is? Anyone still use the physical map? Right? You ever pull that out of your car? Okay. Why is that? Why do you guys still use physical maps? You don't have to, right? There's other options. They don't have batteries. Is that why? All right. They don't need the internet, yeah, they're just more trustworthy. But a lot of us don't know, don't use maps, and I think it's because we don't know how. Like, if you're anything like me, I don't know how to read a map. I'm, I'm, 
Yeah, so I, I have updated myself and my car to follow something else. And what is that new thing? GPS. The GPS has a map, but it really just says, turn here. <laughs> do this. Don't do that. Make a U-turn. So the map is kind of obsolete, unfortunately. Anyone know what this is? Overhead projector. You guys remember these things? These things, for like 15 years, is what everybody taught from. See, back in the 80s and the 90s, it took a little muscle to preach. That's right. We didn't rely on all this technology like I do now. So back in the day, you had the overhead projector. You guys remember those things? My, I had some professors that would have stacks of slides that they put on these things. So sometimes they'd all fall on the ground. It was ridiculous. What is the new version of the overhead projector? There's a little hint. I'm using it right now. What am I using? A TV. I'm using a tablet, and I'm casting that tablet to the screen. It's very technical. I can't even explain how it does it. But that is the new version of the overhead projector. Those things are obsolete. If you have one, it's time to let it go. Okay? It just is. How about this one? You guys remember this? What is that? Calculator watch. Let me ask this question. Who needed calculation so quickly, so readily, that they had to have it on their wrist? Did anyone have a calculator watch back in the day? Nobody had a calculator watch? Yeah, there was a few. My dad had one. That's right. I think most people used it for tips. You know, when it's time to tip, you bring that little calculator watch. But what has replaced the calculator watch? Does anyone have the updated version of this, the Apple Watch or the Smart Watch available? Yes. I think they probably have calculators on them. You could probably calculate on it, right? But it does like a million other things as well. Calculator watches are obsolete. Now, this one might be a little bit harder to figure out, but what is that? Not the object there. But what are we... The peephole, right? Every house, most, most houses had a peephole, Right? And if you have a house that's a little bit older, you probably still have these peepholes. Now, I don't know what's going on in that people, but I would not open the door to that individual. Um, maybe it's the hat. I don't know. But what has replaced the people? What are we now using instead of the people? Some of you guys have this. Ring doorbells, right? You don't even have to get up to peep. Now you just peep from your chair. And you go, nah, no, I don't want to open the door to that person. I'm going to stay right where I am. Or you tell them to get lost. Because um, you could talk through them. <laughs> Here's the funny one. Um, what, what is that? Who is that? That's a doctor. That's a doctor. And this one's kind of a little bit funny, but doctors, to some degree, to some people, have become obsolete because what are people using now? That's right, the internet. We're Googling our symptoms, and Google is telling us we're going to be dead in an hour. Because why do I have to go to a doctor to hear that? Why can't Google just tell me I'm going to die? So doctors have become obsolete. That's a bad idea, by the way, okay? Don't do that. Don't type your little symptom in Google because it's always going to turn up to your death. Bad idea. But doctors have become obsolete. How about this one, the clapper? Who remembers the clapper? You guys remember the clapper? Who had the clapper? You guys had the clapper. Yeah, you guys remember that? Now, the clapper had a really interesting concept. It was really simple. As soon as you clap, the lights went off. And then you clap again, they come back on. How did I do that? Very clever, right? Clapper. I remember the old commercial where the lady's lying in bed and she wants her TV off because she's done with it. She claps it off. Didn't work that time. <laughs> it's only one and once and done. Um, but what has replaced the clapper? We don't clap anymore. What do we do? We, we tell someone to do it. We tell Rod to do it. What do we tell? Alexa. Turn the lights off, Alexa. Turn my TV off, Alexa. Massage my back, Alexa. 
Alexa has now replaced the clapper. A couple more. You guys remember these? That's right. Blackberry. Who had a Blackberry in the day? Me and David and Tim. That's it. All right. What's that? I won't admit to it. You won't admit, you, you won't admit to it. No, that's really even sadder. Blackberries back in the day were everything. Right? Everyone had a Blackberry. In fact, so many people had them, they called it Crackberry because it was like a drug. It was addicting. So what has replaced the Blackberry? Smartphone. You're all wrong. It's a trick question. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Still rocking the Blackberry. If anyone said that, you get 100%. And if you guys didn't, that's a zero. Blackberries are still around. I can prove it. If you need to come see it, come check it out. Here's one more. One more thing that has become obsolete. Moose sightings. <laughs> Back in the day, people saw these things, and now they don't. What has replaced the moose sighting? Comedy. Moose, what's that? Comedy. Com That's exactly right. Moose jokes. <laughs> moose jokes have replaced the moose sighting. And, and my tears, because I still haven't seen a moose. Mooses are somewhere out there. We will eventually find one. But some things have become obsolete in this life, haven't they? We're going to talk about something kind of like that today. Something that has replaced the old. And we're going to call this today the new covenant of love. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be jumping around a little bit today, and that's okay. But this word covenant is a word I think we're pretty familiar with. But it's not a word we use a lot, and there's a reason for that. It's a very serious and important word, covenant. But what is a covenant? If, you would have to, if someone asked you that question, what is a covenant? Would you be able to come up with a definition for the word covenant? Think about it in your mind. What would the word covenant mean? Well, I've heard before it's kind of like a promise. The word covenant is kind of like a promise, and it is kind of like a promise. The difference with a covenant and a promise is a promise can be one-sided. I can make a promise to my children that we'll have ice cream someday, and my children can, can get really excited about that, and I can either keep or not keep that promise because it's not a two-sided promise. Well, a covenant is a two-sided promise. In fact, it's kind of like an agreement, or if you will, a contract. It's like a contract between two people who make an agreement to do something together, and it's a really important thing. Today we're going to look at, this is going to be our little outline. Now I will say this about our outline, okay? We're probably not going to finish this today. I looked at the content that I have and I realized, kind of like last week, we had a really long sermon. We have too much today to go over. So what we're going to do, the, the plan today, is simply go over number one. And we're going to leave the last three for next week, unless the Lord decides otherwise. But that's our plan today, is go over number one. And we're going to close our service today by having communion. And you'll understand why we're doing it that way today, because the text is really going to lead us in to communion today. But we're going to save the other three for next week. So if you have the notes, if you've got the notes coming in, save those notes for next week, okay? Because we're going to pick up right where we left off today. But we're going to talk about what is the covenant of love. If you have your Bible, most of your Bibles are broken up into two sections, right? You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has a few more books than the New Testament, but that's how our Bibles are broken up. It's interesting, though, that the word testament and covenant are interchangeable. Now, the word testament that we use is not the same word as covenant, okay? When someone says will and testament, that's not what we're talking about today, okay? Because a testament is something that you pass on to someone once you die, and that person doesn't really have a choice in the matter. They don't really decide that with you. They just get that. So someone makes that decision to pass something on. 
But that's not really the word we're talking about today. The word we're talking about today, again, is, is an agreement, a two-sided promise. In fact, I'm going to give you the definition that I found. I found this right online, and I, I usually look at the definition first online and, and decide it's not very good, but this one was actually pretty good. So I'm going to read this definition that I found online. It says an agreement. Okay, so an agreement, remember, is two-sided, which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people. That's a good definition for the word covenant. An agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people. Now, that word commitment is generally a good word, right? That's a word that most of us appreciate. Commitment is a good word. But I did look up the word commitment online, too, and I found something a little shocking. Now, I don't know if you can see that. It's probably really hard to see from your seat, but I'm going to read it so you don't have to. And when I looked up definition for commitment, I found two different definitions. Now, the first one is probably the one that you're expecting. It says the state or, or quality of being dedicated to a cause or an activity. The state or quality of being dedicated to a cause or activity. And some of these synonyms are dedication, devotion, allegiance, loyalty, faithfulness, fidelity. So that definition for commitment is a good one. The second definition, however, is quite interesting because it's also a noun, but listen to the second definition of commitment because I believe this is a pretty recent definition. I do not think this definition has been around quite as long as the first one. Listen to what it says. An engagement or obligation that restricts freedom of action. Isn't that interesting? An engagement or obligation that restricts Freedom of action. Is that confusing to you? The word commitment now has a negative connotation. But look around in our culture. Can't you kind of see that being permeated in our culture? Commitment is now a bad word. Look at some of the synonyms. Responsibility. Obligation. Duty. Liability. Burden. Pressure. That definition is a sad definition. And I find that quite interesting that the two definitions are polar opposite one another. One is a very good thing, a, a dedicated cause, and the other one restricts your freedom of action. So it all depends on your perspective when you look at this word covenant, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. An agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment between God and his people. If you've been at all um, influenced by our culture, that might not be a great definition. That might be something you try to avoid. But our goal today is to appreciate the new covenant of love by looking at it, taking a long glance at what this new covenant of love is and thereby appreciating it. Now, we also use covenant in another context, don't we? Often marriage is referred to as a covenant, and we get that from Scripture as well. Marriage is a covenant because marriage is also a commitment, is it not? But again, using the definition that we just found, that could be a good thing if things are going well with your spouse, or it could feel like you're trapped based on that new definition of commitment. But the marriage is a covenant, and we get marriage from who? Who do we get marriage from? Who created marriage? God did. God created marriage all the way back in the Old Testament with Adam and Eve. He gave Eve to Adam. And he started marriage all the way back then. And then you find in the New Testament what marriage is really about. What is marriage really about? Is it about romance between a man and a woman? No. Not primarily. It's about the relationship between Christ and his church. And he instituted this marriage on earth to reflect that covenant in a powerful way. 
In uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we find this. I don't know if you can read that either. I'm going to zoom in here a little bit, which will help just a little bit. But it says this in Ephesians 5, speaking about marriage. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Isn't that interesting? Marriage was instituted to reflect Christ and his church and the commitment they have to one another, i.e., the covenant of love. Now, yes, in 2009, a little story of how a girl met a boy and a boy met a girl. In 2009, Janine and I got married on July 11th, 2009. And that picture on the right looks like it's from the 40s a little bit, but I promise you it was 2009. Um, Janine and I got married July 11th, 2009, and we've been married close to 14 years. And that day is the day that Janine and I started a covenant relationship together. Now, in the fall of 2008, we got engaged. It was actually a day called Sweetest Day. Has anyone ever heard of that day? In Michigan, they celebrate this holiday. See, I, knew, I told you, Janine, no one else celebrates Sweetest Day. But it... But in Michigan, it was a thing. As soon as I arrived there, it was kind of like a mini Valentine's Day, and I was in trouble if I didn't do something on Sweetest Day. I wasn't. I'm teasing. But we got engaged on Sweetest Day, October 18th, 2008. But we did not start our covenant until July 11th, 2009. And why is that? It's because we did not say our vows until July 11th, 2009. In fact, the day I got engaged to Janine was sort of a nerve-wracking day. If anyone's been through that process, a little nerve-wracking to ask someone to marry you, isn't it, men who have done this? Regardless of how good the relationship is going at that moment, it's always a little nerve-wracking to pull a ring out of your pocket, get on one knee, which is what I did, and say, would you marry me? Because I was basically offering Janine a covenant. I was saying, Janine, this ring is, is going to represent the covenant that I'm offering you today. But Janine had a choice, right? She had a choice to say yes or get off my lawn, you creep. <laughs> and if she said the latter, that covenant does not take place, does it? Because a covenant is not a one-way street. The covenant did not begin the moment I spoke to Janine, my desire to marry her. The covenant only began when Janine said yes, and then we followed it through with her vows. Because that's what a covenant is. And in the Old Testament, there was an old covenant. In fact, according to some commentators, there's anywhere from five to seven old covenants in the Old Testament. If you remember one really important one, one, one that's very, ever since you were probably a child, you've heard of this covenant, is the covenant with Noah. You guys remember that? When Noah came out of the ark, was rescued from the flood, he and his family, they came out of the ark. God put something in the sky. What was that? A rainbow. And that rainbow was a symbol of God's covenant to man that he would never flood the world again. So there are other covenants in the, in the Old Testament, but the primary covenant that we're going to talk about today which is found all through the Old Covenant, is the covenant God made with a man called Moses. You remember this story? Moses went up on the mountain. He was, he was decided that he was going to lead the children of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. Moses was God's chosen man. And Moses had a long history with the children of Israel, a long, complicated history. But it's a very important story because it's God handing out his covenant to his nation, Israel. And the way that he did that is by giving these people the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 4.13, it says, God declared to you the covenant that you were commanded to observe the Ten Commandments, inscribing them 
on two tablets of stone. God decided to create a covenant with his people and then use the Ten Commandments as the terms of that covenant. So God decided that he was going to take care of his people. He was going to get them out of slavery in Egypt. He was going to get them through the ten plagues. He was going to get them through the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted in two so his people could walk through on dry ground and not be harmed. And then he decided to lead them in the wilderness through a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. God's covenant was a covenant of love and protection. He would be their God. They would be his people. God would care for them, watch over them, love them with his steadfast love. But the Ten Commandments were the terms of the covenant. If the people were going to keep the covenant with God, they were to abide by those Ten Commandments. And how did that story go? Was it happily ever after, like most stories go in Hollywood? No, it wasn't, unfortunately. Unfortunately, that's not how this story went. God bent over backwards to love these people and to keep his side of the covenant. But these people refused. Many of them refused to keep their covenant with God. So generation after generation, God kept trying with these people. And eventually, a lot of these people ended up dying and not making it to the promised land because they were unwilling and unable to keep the covenant that God had made with his people. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 7, and I want you to think about this language. It says in verse 9, if you have your Bibles, you can join me there if you can't see the screen. It says in Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 9, he says, know, for, know therefore that the Lord your God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him, By destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. It doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? That doesn't sound like things were going as they had planned to go. God had made a covenant with his people. His people refused to keep the covenant with God. And God says, if you do not keep my covenant... I will repay to your face by destroying you. That's a sad way to read the covenant, to start off the covenant that we understand with our God. But you have to understand something today. That covenant was not meant to be permanent, was it? That covenant was never supposed to be the primary covenant. Now, take a look at this picture, okay? I don't know if that kind of triggers something inside of you, but do you like what you see? <laughs> For those who are interior designers, you're probably cringing at this idea, but Janine and I had a house that we lived in that kind of looked like this. Remember that, Janine? Almost every room of, of the house kind of looked like it was from the 70s. Uh, I don't know if you like what you see. Some people might, might not be bothered by that. Does anyone like that? Yeah, anyone like that style there? I don't mind it. It's not the worst thing. What's that? Child of the 70s? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. It needs a little bit of freshness, but that's not an overall bad room. But for those who, who like style, that is, that is out of date, correct? That's an out of date style that nobody uses anymore. I mean, look at, that, look at that carpet alone. What's going on there? That looks like the after picture when my kids have dinner. Um, that's how it looks after. But basically what we're, what we're talking about here is God made a covenant with his people. And what happened with that covenant? It became insufficient. We've been talking a lot about this word sufficiency, about how Jesus is sufficient, how the gospel is sufficient, how the word of God is sufficient, how grace is sufficient. But God, did you know God created something that was insufficient? 
Did you know that? God created something, the old covenant, to be insufficient. Isn't that interesting? Could God create something insufficient? Well, he did. And we're going to find that from Scripture. That's what it's going to tell us today. But God created something to be insufficient. Why would God do that? A lot of pictures here today. Now, our God is complex, okay? God has created this world with beauty and other things that aren't quite as beautiful. And here's an example of that. Now, I don't know if some of you like possums. I think they're hideous. Um, I think they're one of the ugliest creatures I've ever seen. But on the other side is something really, really cute. And you know what we're looking at here? We're looking at a contrast. Ugly, as weird as it is to say that word, it sounds harsh, but ugly actually does a blessing for beautiful and for cute and for things like that. Because the contrast enables something that's already beautiful to be even more so. Well, God created the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was never supposed to be his permanent covenant. Because the Old Covenant did not include someone really, really important. And who was that? The Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, was. this was not a plan God made up as he went. Okay, The Lord Jesus Christ was a part of God's plan ever since he created the world. And here we have the idea of what was so insufficient about the Old Covenant and what was sufficient about the New Covenant that God was going to establish. Here's just a few examples of that. Now, in the Old Covenant, we were under God's law. Okay, and we told you that didn't go well for the Israelites because they broke God's commandments over and over and over. But in the New Covenant, we find ourselves to be under something called grace. And grace, as we talked about, deals with forgiveness and the ability to do what we otherwise can't do without God's strength. So we're not under the power of the law. We are now under the power of grace. Thank the Lord. The Old Covenant was a righteousness that was attained through works by obedience to God's commandment. The New Covenant was based on faith. Those who find righteousness in Jesus Christ find it by believing in him, right? That's how we find full righteousness with God, not by obeying a set of commandments. That's not how we find full righteousness. Those commandments, as we're going to learn, are still important. But we find full righteousness with God simply by faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Commandment, excuse me, the Old Covenant had high priests, and those high priests themselves were sinners. So the high priests had to go into the tabernacle and do this little ceremony with the blood of bulls and goats, and that's next on our list. But this, this system was insufficient in every possible way because the person offering the gift was a sinner, and the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to take care of the sins of the people for all time. But in the New Covenant, we have a great high priest, and we already mentioned his name. It is Jesus Christ. And he did not take the blood of bulls and goats into the tabernacle. He took his own blood into the tabernacle. And that was pure, holy, spotless, blemish-free, son of God blood. And that blood was sufficient to wipe all our sins away from God's presence for all time. That's sufficient blood. In the Old Covenant, Jesus could be next to us. We could have God's presence near us. We could get it from Moses. We could get it from the prophets, right? Jesus came to this earth to be with his disciples. But then he left and he did something even more profound according to the terms of the new covenant. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Now we went from God's presence being near us to God's presence being within us. Do you see how much better the new covenant is? In the old, the old covenant, we relied a lot on our own wisdom and strength to do what God had called us to do. 
In the New Covenant, we rely upon God's wisdom and God's strength that he provides through that grace, provides through that Holy Spirit. The New Covenant is so much better than the Old. And that's just a taste of what the New Covenant was going to offer us. And what God was going to tell to these people, even the old nation of Israel, he was going to tell them, regardless of how bad things are going for you with this Old Covenant, something new is coming soon. A new covenant is going to come. And he told this through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, the prophet says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, I want you to picture yourself in, in today living in that house that I just showed you with the 70s decor. Okay, living with Janine and I did this. We actually lived this. Every day of our lives, we lived in a house that had 70s decor everywhere. And we kept thinking the same thought. Boy, it would be great to freshen this place up a little bit. Well, I want you to imagine yourself living under the days of the Old Covenant. And every day is a struggle. Every day is a struggle to do what God has called you to do. You're always finding failure. You're always finding God to be angry and upset with you. And then the prophet comes to you one day and says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. An update, an upgrade is coming, Israelites. And it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Where was the old terms of the covenant? Was it written within them? No, it was written on two tablet stones that broke, and then they had to go get a new set. And God says, I will make a new covenant. I will write those laws, those laws of mine that are really important for you to keep. I'll put them right on your heart. I'll inscribe them right on your heart. They'll always be within you. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. Everyone who enters this covenant, everyone who experiences this new covenant will know me intimately, God says. Intimately. You will know me as well as any person in the world could know their God. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Amen? Those sins that we've committed against God, which is a truckload of sins. If I had to calculate my sins, there's no way I could... The amount of thoughts and bad deeds that I've committed over the course of my life, there's no way for me to understand how much sin I've acquired in my life. But God says, under the terms of the new covenant, I will be their God, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. I will take all of that sin away from them. <laughs> now, if you guys have ever seen these before and after pictures, that's kind of how these go, okay? Um, there's an old picture, and I, I kind of, look at this guy, I kind of need his barber. <laughs> Um, the guy had, had a picture before, he got a little procedure done, and that's how he looks now. And, and what was going on for these Old Testament people, God's people, is a new covenant was going to come that was going to drastically change their life in every possible way. And now let's look at the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We looked at a little bit of what it offers. 
But what does it actually reveal to these people who are now under the new covenant? This is what the old covenant was, and this is what the new covenant was. And I want you to simply understand this contrast, okay? This is why the one was designed to be insufficient. So that the new covenant, once it came, could shine brilliantly. Now, the old covenant was a shadow. You guys know what a shadow is. It's a likeness. It's a likeness. If you've seen your shadow, you have seen a likeness of yourself. But a shadow is not you, is it? The old covenant was a shadow. It was a likeness of God's relationship with his people, but it was not the substance. The new covenant was designed to be the substance, was designed to be God's intimacy with his people. And that new covenant brought everything that God wanted to give his people in one fell swoop. The old covenant was also temporal. It was temporary in practicality, meaning the high priests would have to take the blood of bulls and goats every year into the tabernacle and sprinkle that blood of bulls and goats on the mercy seat every year because every year the sins kept amassing for the people. So every year this process had to be done. So it was temporal practically, but it was also temporary by the way it was made. God's old covenant was never meant to be eternal. It was meant for a season and for a time before the new covenant came. The new covenant, however, once it arrived, it is eternal. From the moment the new covenant arrived here till the rest of eternity, we will all be within the new covenant. And the old covenant was written on stone, stone tablets. The new covenant is written on our hearts. We've talked about that. The old covenant was a law of sin and death, the law that you could not keep. The law that every time you tried to keep it, you realized how bad you were. That was the law of sin and death. It drove you to realize how evil you were. It drove you to see that damnation was coming because of that sin. But the new covenant offers a law that is different, a law of liberty, a law of life. And we find that liberty in the pages of the New Testament where Jesus says, not only will I teach you my law and how you can keep it, I will give you every possible means to be able to keep that. I will give you the Holy Spirit. I will give you the church. I will give you the word of God. I will give you each other so that you can keep my law. It's a law of liberty and a law of life. In the Old Covenant, there was many insufficient sacrifices. We talked about that. That sacrifices were abundant. Bulls and goats kept having to be offered because their blood wasn't sufficient to take care of all of the sins for all time. And then one person came and changed it all. And he was spotless. He was holy. He was righteous. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He did the will of God every single moment of his life. And then he laid down that life for his people. And that blood was sufficient blood to save us for all time. The old covenant could not save us. It could only condemn us. The new covenant saves absolutely. As soon as you are in the new covenant, you are saved. You are saved. Your sins are cleansed. Your sins are removed from you. You have a relationship with God that is eternal, and it's all thanks to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we primarily find the new covenant, and this is where we're going to stop today. We're going to spend the rest of our time partaking of communion. But I want you to see the new covenant as it's being told to the people in Hebrews. Because Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. And they're hearing about this new covenant, and you must understand these people would have known the old covenant system. Okay, They would have known it very intimately, how insufficient it was, how difficult, how frustrating it was. So when the writer of Hebrews brings up this new covenant, this is, must be a breath, a, breath, a breath of fresh air. That's tough to say. 
especially from the pulpit. There must have been a breath of fresh air or a cup of cool water. I want you to listen to what it says in verse 6 of Hebrews 8. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The entire foundation of the new covenant is different than the old. The old covenant was based on our ability to keep it. It was based on the blood of bulls and goats. This new covenant is based upon Jesus Christ, his ability to keep the law, his ability to die for our sins, his ability to rise from the dead, his ability to honor the Lord, excuse me, God the Father. So that new covenant was going to be a breath of fresh air. He says in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Isn't that complex to understand that God created a system to have faults, to be insufficient? He created a contrast. He created a system that was going to bother us so that when the new covenant arrives, we would all go, thank you, Father. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for this new covenant. We would all be driven to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how loving God is? He knows what we're made of. He knows, as we sang about that, we are dust. And he knows that our tendency is to overlook things that we desperately need. So in his will, his sovereign will and his great steadfast love, he created a system that would be so frustrating that when the new covenant came, the new covenant would shine brilliantly because that contrast would be there. It says in verse 8, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, there's our word, obsolete. The new covenant and the old covenant do not hang around together, okay? Once the new covenant comes, the old one goes away. He says, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. We all do this, right? We all do this. We do it with garbage every single week. We take out the old stuff, we put it on the curb, and the garbage men come and take it away. But we also do this with pieces of furniture, right? My, uh, my family, a couple of years ago now, uh, decided to invest in a new couch and love seat because our old one had been around for a long time. So when we got this new couch and loveseat, we put it right there in our living room because it looked better than our old. And guess what we did with that old one? We gave it to the kids. We put it downstairs in the kids' room. Sorry, I hadn't. But we took the old and we, and we put it somewhere where we didn't care if it got spilled on. Because for a while, it was the only couch we had. It was the good couch. But when the new couch came, the, new, the old couch became obsolete. And we took it and put it somewhere that we don't care about it anymore. Because that's what happens when the new comes. The old is no longer needed. And it's interesting that God created it that way. So that when the new covenant came, the old covenant could be taken to the curb because it was obsolete. In chapter 9, he goes on about the new covenant. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, great high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent... And he's not talking about a tent like we think about. He's talking about the tabernacle. There was a tabernacle, a literal tabernacle, that the people would have to, the high priest would have to enter in for the people to atone for their sins. It was a physical tent, a big tent. And the, and the high priest would go in and atone for the sins of the people that they continued to sin year after year after year. But when Christ entered, he didn't enter into a physical tent, did he? Not a tent made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy places, the actual holy places, not a copy, 
not a shadow, he entered into the throne room of God. Not by means of blood and bulls and goats, coats and calves, because that would do nothing for our sins before the holy God, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you see in that one verse how important the blood of Jesus is? Do you see how sufficient that blood is for our soul? That blood can be brought into the throne room of God and can cover our sins to such a degree that we are removed from the presence of those sins and we are given an eternal redemption in the eyes of God because of the sufficiency of that person's blood. The new covenant. God's plan was to give us his son to change one word into a different word. An insufficient system to completely sufficient in every possible way. We didn't need anything else. Once Jesus came, we had everything we could possibly need. And God said, that was my plan from the beginning. I did not create something insufficient because I couldn't make something good. That's not what God is saying. He said, I did it for your benefit. I did it for your benefit so that you could see something in this new covenant that you otherwise might not see. He says, therefore, in verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. That's how important blood is to God. Blood is the atonement for our sins. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says this, in him, who's it speaking about? Yes, in him, Jesus. We have redemption through his blood. There's our redemption. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. If you have redemption today, if you have forgiveness today, who do you owe the credit to? Jesus and his precious blood that was spilled for your sake. And in a moment, we're going to partake of communion. And the reason we're doing it after today, the service, is because I want this in our minds as we partake of communion today. I want us to imagine how our lives would be without the blood and, and body of our Lord Jesus Christ. It would be absolute dreadful. In verse 19 of Hebrews 9, it says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, because that was the process saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent, the tabernacle, and all the vessels used in worship. Everything was covered in blood. It was a gory scene. But it had to atone for all the sins of the Israelites. And he says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't he just snap his fingers and save us from heaven? God is holy. Our God is holy, 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 and he cannot wink at our sin. He cannot take those sins and sweep them under the rug and act like they never happened. That sin has to be paid for. In the Old Testament system, it was paid for by the blood of bulls and goats. Many sacrifices, many blood, many bulls and goats had to God die and give their life but in the new covenant, one person arrived and his blood was so pure, so profound, so sufficient in nature that if he shed it for mankind, it would be once and done. It would take care of all the sins for all time for all people who trusted in him. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Uh, the prophet Isaiah said this about the Old Covenant. He said, speaking of God, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't really change anything. But when Jesus came to this earth, and you remember the voice came down from heaven, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I'm not pleased with blood of bulls and goats, but who am I pleased with? My son. Because he does everything that I want him to do. He does everything that I consider holy and pure and righteous. But remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So someone sufficient was going to have to die for us. We couldn't even pay for it. I couldn't pay for my own sins except for an eternity in God's hell. But someone could, and he did, thankfully. And this is where we find this most blessed truth. In verse 23 in Hebrews, it says, Thus it was necessary for the copies, the old covenant, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but with heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You can tell the copies was not sufficient. In verse 24, he says, For Christ has entered not, in, uh, excuse me, not into the holy places made with hands, not into the tent, the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things. But where did God enter? Where did Jesus enter? Into heaven, now to appear in the presence of God. Did he spill his blood for his own benefit? Was God angry with his son? Did Jesus have to do anything on his own behalf? No. He was perfect, spotless, holy, righteous in every thought, in every action. Why did he come to earth? For our behalf. We had made a quite a big mess of things with our sin. And Jesus had to pay for those sins. And if he did not pay for those sins, we could never have a right relationship with God. God would always be against us. And the Old Covenant went away. As soon as Jesus came, there was no need for this Old Covenant anymore because the New Covenant was always the point. But in order for that New Covenant to arrive, in order for that New Covenant to take place, Jesus had to die. His body had to be broken and his blood had to be spilled because that New Covenant was going to provide everything that God ever wanted to give us. But there was a massive chasm between us and God at that time. And it was our sin. And the only one who could close that chasm permanently was the Lord Jesus Christ. So he went through this process, this really humiliating, painful, torturous process that we're now going to celebrate so that this truth could be our reality. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but finish it. Have everlasting, eternal life. Why? Because the son's blood was that pure. His body was that precious to God. And that new covenant, once it was established, is established forevermore. We don't have to look for another sacrifice. We don't have to look for another system. We find everything, everything in the sufficient son of God. And now we're going to partake of communion because I think that's a powerful way to end today.